Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Clausen, and today I have Dr. Amy Lindsay on with us. She is a naturopathic doctor and alumni. Um, she is firmly believes in the craft and clinic philosophy of a balance of science and art in crafting customized healthcare. So welcome to the show today, Dr. Amy. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I would love to kind of chat with a little bit about your own personal background and what drew you to the naturopathic medicine route. Hmm. Well, um, I have a history actually as a musician and I worked in the music industry for a long time as a concert and festival promoter and producer. And I worked in radio as well for a while as a radio producer. And so that's what I was doing with my time. <laughs> I did not know this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had worked in health food stores and I was always interested in nutrition and always interested in organic groceries and things like that. And then um, I ran into my own issues with my health. I ran into, um, I had an appointment with a doctor. Let's just say, I don't need to go into the whole condition here, but uh, it was recommended that I have a total hysterectomy. And I was about 33 at the time. And that seemed like a big deal. That yeah. seemed like not a decision to take lightly. And so I got a second opinion and the second opinion I got was from a naturopathic doctor. Mm. So I had gone to a, my gynecologist who was saying hysterectomy. I went to a naturopathic doctor who I had met for the first time and, uh, her take on it was, you know, we can act. I would actually recommend you have a much more minor surgery and not take the uterus and the ovaries out. And then after that, come back and see me and we'll get to work. And so we did, and we adjusted, uh, lifestyle. We adjusted nutrition. We adjusted environmental pollutants and Mm. plastics in my house and all, all of that stuff, the environmental toxin part. And I've never had to have a total hysterectomy. And in fact, I, was able to get pregnant and have my little baby boy, who's now almost 10. Wow! <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's options out there, you know, it may be indicated that that's, that's your story that you need some major surgery like that, but it may not be mm. always get a second opinion. So that, anyway, that is great tip decided, right there. The second opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I decided that after all that, that uh, it was such a good experience and so profound for me. And I learned so much in that process that I decided to um, quit the music industry and go back to school uh, to become a naturopathic doctor. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, now I have like a logistic question. So if someone's listening and they're like, okay, is naturopathic medicine, is that covered by insurance or how does that kind of work? If someone's kind of thinking, mm. Ooh, I want to explore that route, but has that question. Mm. Well, it depends on what state you mm. live in. So naturopathic doctors are not regulated, uh, federally, right? So you can't use, um, Medicare for a naturopathic doctor. Um, you, uh, you definitely have to find out if, uh, naturopathic doctors are licensed in your state and then what that state allows and what it 
different insurance companies allow. So I'm in Washington and I, um, I'm licensed in Washington and I'm licensed in California because I primarily practice telehealth. It was my 2020 pivot that has stayed. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I am now only doing telehealth and in Washington and California, um, naturopathic doctors do take insurance. I personally don't, I'm a cash-based practice, but, um, I provide super bills and people can submit them to their insurance for okay. reimbursement. So it just really depends on the state you're in. And if naturopathic doctors are licensed in the state that you're in. Okay. Thank you for that logistics. Cause I think people probably are questioning, or at least I was too. I'm like, Oh, well, I need to find that. And I don't know in Minnesota. So I'll, I'll look it up and I'll probably put it in the show notes. If anyone local is like, Ooh, what about Minnesota? I'll put that in the details. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would love to kind of chat. So today our conversation, so I actually, Dr. Amy and I were in the same mastermind this past year. And so that's how we met and I know her and I love all of the work that she does. And she primarily focuses on perimenopause. And so that's why I wanted to have her on today to kind of chat about that. So I want to kind of first dive into if people are new to that term, can maybe defining what perimenopause is, what ages, um, who should be kind of looking out for it? What are those signs? All of the things that people might be like, whoa, that's a new term. Yeah. So perimenopause, it's not a word that's uh, just thrown around. <laughs> I mostly get people saying, Perry, what? What about <laughs> menopause? So let's first define menopause. So menopause is your last period, like the moment after your last period. So it's a moment in time and you don't know, at least according to the definitions of menopause, it's you haven't had a period in one year. Now you're one year post-menopausal. Okay. So by the time you know you have hit menopause, you're actually one year post-menopausal. Mm. So the moment of your last period, you're not going to know that. Perimenopause. Peri uh, means around or near. And most people use that de definition as before menopause. And I am a little looser with that definition because I find that a lot of the same signs and symptoms and struggles and issues surrounding perimenopause continue up to about five years post-menopause. Mm. So perimenopause can start any time up to about a decade before menopause. And so one of the best ways to sort of figure out if you're perimenopausal, honestly, is to ask your biological mother if she is still alive or you have access to her. So I understand that in, even in bringing this up, if you have a deceased mother or you were adopted or you don't know who your biological mother is, that presents a problem. Don't worry, I'll, I'll clarify some signs and symptoms. But if you do have access to your biological mother, find out when she went through menopause, find out when her last period was then subtract 10 years. <laughs> I have and that's when you should start <laughs> thinking about perimenopause. I'm so almost if 62. Your says 52. But, oh man. 62. My, yeah. 62. So 52 so would be when I would time. first, that's when I would first be like on my radar is 52. Mm -hmm. But I would always say for generally, if you're in your forties, you need to be thinking about it. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. And what about the symptoms? Like are people, you know, sometimes mm. I think, you know, I've seen you post about this too, about like night sweats and just, you know, hot flashes, all of the things that people think, oh, this must be a sign that menopause is coming. So can you chat about maybe some of those myths that you see? Yeah. Well, the first thing is that your first sign of perimenopause is not hot flashes. By the time that you get to hot flashes, you're actually in late perimenopause. So you're get you're even closer to your menopause. Um, but I think it's important also to talk about what a hot flash is and what a hot flash isn't. So night sweats are different than hot flashes, but you can have a hot flash at night. Mm. So then it it is happening at night. But night sweats can happen from anything from like drinking alcohol. That, that night to uh, prescription medications going through your liver. Um, it can be, you know, low blood sugar. It can be high blood sugar. It can be like a myriad of things that can cause a uh, night sweat. A hot flash is really, it comes from your body's inability to regulate its temperature or to, to know what temperature it is. For some reason, your body thinks that it's um, hot. So it goes into a cooling mechanism. That's when like the sweating happens and, and you feel hot, like your body's trying to cool itself off by giving off all this heat. And that is often due to lower estrogen levels and lower serotonin levels in the body. They're actually uh, linked, the serotonin and the estrogen connection. So your hypothalamus in your brain which is the, responsible for thermoregulation in your body, your body temperature is confused, essentially. It doesn't, it's not sure what your body temperature is supposed to be because of these lower levels of serotonin and estrogen. So that's a hot flash. Hmm. Now, perimenopause though, if you're talking about early perimenopause, usually people start to lose sleep. Hmm. Can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep, wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep. And then it starts, then people start to feel irritable. So if you're somebody who has PMS and you have like premenstrual syndrome a few days before your menses in perimenopause, that those symptoms of like irritability and exhaustion and not feeling so great, they usually start to uh, creep into the month. So mm -hmm. instead of just a few days before your menses, now now you're looking at, you might be feeling like that a full week before, maybe 10 days before, maybe two weeks before. I'll have some people who are perimenopausal say they just feel irritable half the month. So irritability, uh, feeling burnt out and exhausted, uh, low libido is also on the list. Um, but it usually shows up in sleep. Like you're, you're like sleep, sleep is, is, is probably the most common symptom. And it doesn't seem like you'd be in, it would be perimenopause. It seems like it could be anything else. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, shoot, I had a sleep, um, like kind of doctor or coach on, um, and that's what we were talking about. And the past couple of years, I think all of us would have thought we were in perimenopause with, you know, sleep right. and interruption in the middle of the night. So like probably that stress is also like, if we're going through a huge stress time, you know, it might not be perimenopause. It could be that situation. Um, or it could be perimenopause. How can you kind of help people if they're kind of like, is it perimenopause or is it this, um, you know, is there a test that people can take or how can they kind of clarify for themselves? Yeah. So the, usually for most people, um, 
when your hormones start to change and you start to go through perimenopause, the first big change in hormones is a drop in progesterone. So progesterone is made in the corpus luteum in your ovaries. And what that is, is after you ovulate and your egg is released out of your ovaries, your corpus luteum is kind of the eggshell for lack of a better word left over. And that is generating progesterone. So some people uh, will skip a period, let's say, you know, in perimenopause, your menses start to be a little off and that exacerbates the situation. So if you're skipping periods, then you're not ovulating, then you're not having a corpus luteum to then make the progesterone. Mm -hmm. Or there's less and less progesterone being made. And so what can often happen is uh, that progesterone drops and progesterone is, is like the hormone that calms you down, makes you feel less anxious, helps you sleep, it helps boost your libido. Progesterone is awesome for that. So then when that starts to go away, you stop sleeping, you feel irritable, your libido starts to tank. And yes, you can test that. So um, most progesterone is tested uh, with serum, with blood. And that can be done on like the 19th, 20th or 21st day of your cycle. It depends on the length of your cycle um, because that's when um, you should have the most progesterone. So that's usually when they test it. You can also do what's called a Dutch test. I run a lot of Dutch tests in my practice, which is a urine based test. And that, that'll run all, of, all your hormones, your testosterone, your estrogen, your progesterone. It'll run... Um, your cortisol, your stress hormones. And so that's also a very good way to get that information. Perfect. Um, I love that. And I took the Dutch test myself uh, about a month ago and it was great. Like, I just wanted to know baseline where am I at? Cause I've never had those numbers before. Mm-hmm. So even if people are just yeah. curious and they're like, I don't think I'm perimenopause, but I just want to know. I mean, I think it's a great test just to kind of have those um, numbers and results on hand. So I love that. Um, now I want to know about cycle tracking during perimenopause. Is there, uh, is it going to look different or what do you kind of suggest around cycle tracking? Yeah. So that's really interesting because most people, when they're cycle tracking and you might know this, cause you do this a lot with people is they're focused on the bleed, mm-hmm. right? Like people track their periods because they need to track when they need to have things around, <laughs> carrying in their backpack or their purse, or they need to like plan their vacations. And, and I think that that is what people do and how people think they're focused on the bleed. And I don't know if you find that as well, but that's what, that's been my experience. And so what I try to do is all of my patients and all my clients, and then all my participants in my classes, I get them tracking immediately, whether or not the bleed is starting to um, change. Mm. And so I have them tracking their sleep and their mood and their cravings and their hunger and, um, everything that's around the bleed as well, and as well as the bleed so that they can kind of start to guess what changes to start looking for, Mm. you know, and how they're feeling, um, you might know a lot about weight training. I know you have a history in weight training, but you know, I talk to people about like 
different times during the cycle, it might be easier to lift heavier. And then in other times in your cycle, it's, it's not, it's, you gotta like lower the weight that you're lifting. So I, I have people track everything, not just their bleed, specifically their mood, uh, what they're craving to eat, how they're feeling, uh, if they're feeling irritable, like if they are feeling their libido kicking in or not, um, and all that stuff. And it's hard. It's hard in modern society, right? You know, there's so many things coming at us in all directions that it's hard to sort of come back to our bodies um, during this time. But I also have them track their um, their bleeding times as well, because that gives us a lot of information. A lot of women and don't know that their ovaries take turns mm-hmm. each month. And so sometimes I'll get women where, especially in perimenopause, where, you know, they'll say, oh, well, every, it's, it's strange, but every other cycle, um, it'll be 45 days and then 28 days and then 45 days and then 28 days. And I say, well, that 45 day ovary <laughs> is starting to give you a sign. It wants to retire. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean it does get a little tricky. And so I think that not just tracking the bleed is important. I love that you said that. Cause I think that's, I mean, if people are, so just to clarify, if someone was like, Oh, what do you mean every other month? Can you just talk about that? And when an egg is released, just in case people are like, maybe are not sure of that. Yeah. So the menstrual cycle, um, most people have two ovaries. <laughs> You may have been born without ovaries or you may, and so you don't have periods or you may have been born with one, or maybe you've had to have one surgically removed for some reason, but let's just uh, say you have two ovaries and they're both working. Um, you, your body will uh, release an egg from one ovary. So say your right ovary, and then it'll go into your uterus and look, you know, and wait around to see if it's going to be, um, fertilized. And if not, then you have your period. And then the, the next, the next time it's up to the left ovary and they just kind of go back and forth like that. And so in tracking your cycles, um, it's completely common to, uh, have an every other like that, you know, like, oh, well this month it was 21 days. And then the next month it's 35 days. And it seems to do that. So if that's, what's happening, then you have one ovary cycling faster than the other one. Now in the like Ayurveda, we have our like protocol of how we would go about this, but I would love to know. So if that's happening, is there anything that you would say, Hey, maybe we should look at this or is it okay to have that imbalance? Well, in perimenopause, it is okay, right? So if I was working with somebody for for, uh, fertility, I might have a different conversation. That might be a different conversation. But in perimenopause, um, there's not a lot that I personally would do to correct it. What I'm more interested in then is their progesterone levels, right? Mm -hmm. We just talked about Mm -hmm. this. I'm interested in if they're uh, starting to skip periods or have long cycles, then I'm more interested in the consequences of the low progesterone. Mm. So, um, there's a lot that, um, we can do. I do practice hormone therapy. I do prescribe bioidentical hormones and synthetic hormones. And in this state, uh, most people 
would be on what's called cyclic progesterone. So that is a tool that I can use where I would give someone progesterone during the luteal phase of their cycle, which is the, the um, last half, give or take of the cycle to help support them during that time. And not just in their periods, but progesterone, like I said, helps with your sleep helps with your mood, helps protect your bones. You know, progesterone is really great for um, bone formation. And so in perimenopause and in menopause, um, those are things that are important to protect is your bones and your mental health. <laughs> so a lot of people, I will, I will prescribe um, cyclic progesterone therapy. Okay. What about like hormone replacement therapy in general? Is that something that, you know, you are pro or against, or it depends. It depends. Um, one thing that I think we need to remember in this, in a conversation like this is so first off, I, I believe, and I know that we've industrialized faster than we've evolved. Mm. So we're not going to go, uh, live in the cave and go back to hunter gathering days. And this, and we can go to Andrea's circles and classes and work on our periods, but most people are, are not right. Like they're, they're in this grind of their lives and they're in the grind of their jobs and, and they're on their screens and we're eating food that's highly industrialized and our bodies haven't caught up all this modernization they really haven't and so I kind of have this both and philosophy right that while I do support a lot of natural support and I work really hard on on people's nutrition and their stress and their sleep and their vitamin d and they're getting sunshine and they're tracking their cycles and <laughs> all these things and organic food um, I also know that sometimes you cannot out lifestyle something as big as a hormone change, especially if you've had challenges your whole life and then you hit perimenopause, you know, you haven't been working on all these things. You haven't been, you know, uh, hunting and gathering your food and eating only organic vegetables and managing your sleep and managing your stress. And, you know, it's, it's almost impossible sometimes to out lifestyle giant hormone changes. So I do support home hormone therapy when it's safe and it actually is very safe when it's done correctly. Mm. And is that, um, you know, primarily the perimenopause, I think perimenopause and menopause kind of ages are the time that I hear more people are looking into it. Yeah. So perimenopause, like it depends, right? It's an art. So early perimenopause, we talked about progesterone dropping, but then in, in the mid to later parts of perimenopause, then that estrogen starts to fluctuate because your body is sending signals to the ovaries. Hey, you need to make some estrogen. And the ovaries are saying, you know what? I'm kind of tired and I'm thinking about retirement. And so, <laughs> so they're not producing at the levels that they were. And then, so your brain is like yelling, literally, I mean, not really, but like, let's just pretend your brain is yelling at your ovaries to make estrogen. So there's these huge fluctuations, like high estrogen, low estrogen, high estrogen, low estrogen, hot flashes. That's when all that starts, when people start to feel desperate. And 
so during that time, there's actually, um, you can do a little bit of therapy. You can do, depending on what the person needs. And of course you screen anybody for risks and family history. And of course, anyone who has any um, history of uh, estrogen dominant cancers, like is, is definitely not um, a candidate, but you know, there's definitely a way to use hormone therapy that supports uh, people during this time. And even for a few years following uh, their menopause. And I do think it is helpful for some people, given that we're living longer than we used to. And that women are spending about 25 to 30% of their lives in menopause, like postmenopausal. Yeah. I want to pull on the thread that you mentioned about mental health. Cause I think the mental health mm-hmm. and hormones and how they're tied together. And I don't know if people always realize like, you know, our gut health we know is a big part of it too. And how does this all kind of, how do you kind of look at this from a perimenopause lens? Mm, yeah. Well, so I mentioned earlier that estrogen and serotonin uh, work together in the body and estrogen, you need estrogen to make serotonin. So in the pathway that makes serotonin, estrogen's involved. Mm -hmm. And so if you have low levels of estrogen, then you're going to have lower levels of serotonin and serotonin is, you know, kind of that feel good neurotransmitter kind of acts like a hormone. (laughs) chemical in your body. And, and, you know, there's a lot of women who I think are undertreated in the sense that they're not feeling so great. They're feeling depressed. They're feeling anxious They're, Um, and it's part of midlife. I always, people will come to me and say, well, is it, is it that I'm just in my forties and life is hard. And I just went through a divorce and, and my kids are teenagers and they're difficult. And then my parents are aging or is it perimenopause? And I always say, yes, (laughs) (laughs) it's all the things and and so what will happen is women will go in and talk about their depressed mood and talk about their anxious thoughts and talk about um this sort of mental health piece and they'll get prescribed ssris they'll get prescribed serotonin reuptake inhibitors which are the most popular antidepressants And I'm not against that because I do think that that can save lives. And I think that some people it is indicated for, however, I do think a lot of women are undertreated and, and their hormones are not being looked into, Mm -hmm. you know, and that there's this idea of, well, when your periods start fluctuating or when you start having hot flashes, then come back and see me, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this sort of attitude in the medical community. And so there's so much more that people can be doing to support their physical health, which also supports their mental health. Mm. Mm. I think that's so huge. And I think, um, even from my own experience with, with my own Dutch test is like, I had supplements that the gal recommended and it was Krista King, who has been a guest on this podcast before and, um, love it trust it. And I was like, okay, I mean, me and my supplements, I'm like, not against not pro just was like "Eh," feeling about them. But after taking them, I am instantly like, I messaged her. I was like, okay, within two days, I feel so much better. Didn't realize like my blood flow. So I have a varicose vein, um, that just really didn't have great blood flow on my left leg. And I didn't, I mean, I knew it's bothered me, but then after taking the supplement, she recommended, I was like, I'm like a whole new person. Like the blood flow feels so much better. And it just 
gave me energy that I didn't know I didn't have because I think it was working so hard, you know, with that, my left leg. And so I'm like, just seeing the difference that a little bit can make. And I love that you said you can't out lifestyle, just an imbalance that you might just need a little extra help with. So I think that's um, a good thing to like, just even for people to be aware of, of like, oh, hormones do play such a vital role. And it can be something small that can really make a huge difference in your life. Yeah. I mean, you know, and back to the sleep part, I mean, I could talk about sleep all day, but, um, (laughs) also in the serotonin pathway is melatonin. Mm. Right. Mm. And so if you, if you start to go upstream and you start to ask these questions and you start to go upstream a little bit, if your estrogen is low, okay. So now your serotonin is low. If your serotonin is low, now your melatonin is low. And you start to go down this, you can see where this road leads, right? It leads into not sleeping well, not feeling well, um, feeling more depressed, feeling more anxious. And guess what? You know, midlife is hard for a lot of people. You know, that's when um, I always say like all your major life decisions start to come home to roost. Does that make sense? Uh Like your choices of your children, like having children or not your choice of partner, if you're married or in a partnership with someone, you know, that might change. There's a lot of divorces during this time. There's a lot of remarries during this time. Um, your career, Mm. you know, you might be second guessing your career. You might be wanting to change your career. You might be wanting a different job. Like all these life decisions that you made in your twenties and thirties, by the time you get to your forties, um, I don't want to use the word consequences because that sounds negative, but um, your life choices all sort of start to bubble up to the surface. And Mm -hmm. so whatever isn't working or needs a change, it's really obvious. And then add on top of that, your hormones are changing, which is having real physiological impacts to your mental health at the same time. Mm. It's kind of a one-two punch. And that's why I love working with this demographic so much, because I want women to feel like they're not alone. This is normal, but, and, and both, you don't have to feel like this. We can, we can support you. We can do something about it with the lifestyle and, or maybe some hormone therapy or some nutrient therapy or some supplements, or, you know, there's so many tools out there, but there is something we can do. Mm. It's not Um, hopeless. What about nutrition? What about how does that play a factor in the perimenopause? And let's say someone maybe, you know, they've gained and lost weight all of their lives. And then they're kind of constantly hopping from diet to diet. And then they get to perimenopause and then they feel like, oh my goodness, what is going on with my body? You know, what advice for those people who might just be really struggling, maybe with their weight at this age and stage of their life? Yeah. So this, you know, I always say this, this feels counterintuitive because maybe in your twenties and thirties, when you felt like you were gaining weight, you wanted to lose weight because, uh, in our culture, we often collapse that with health, (laughs) the number on the scale. And it's, it's just not, that's the first thing, but I understand that that's the mindset. So, um, is actually very counterintuitive. Um, and I say this with all the love in my heart and all the compassion, but you probably need to eat more. Mm. That's the first thing is that calorie deprivation 
has finally caught up to. And um, it's really important to know this. So there is a myth out there that the baseline calories needed for a female body person is 1200. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on diet apps, every last diet app. I would even say some, uh, some nutritionists and even some doctors have fallen to this myth. I mean, and from being in the personal training it. world, yes, the 1200, I have many female yeah, clients for the years. And I'm like, I don't know where okay. summer came from. <laughs> I will tell you oh, perfect. Tell you where it came from. Uh, during the first world war, Dr. Uh, Lulu Hunt Peters, can't believe I just pulled that out, um, <laughs> came up with that number for female bodied people as a baseline calorie intake during the war because women were supposed to do it for their country because in times of famine that that was like the base level to survive so the last time I checked we're not in a famine in the uh in North America and this sort of collapsing it with patriotism to me is really gross, right? It's really gross. So it it was basically baseline survival, but not baseline, like good homeostasis with your metabolism and all the things your body needs to do to survive. Oh my God. So that number is actually closer to about 1800 calories. If you were sedentary just for your body to do the things it needs to do, just for your liver to work, your brain to work, your heart, your digestion, and then add on anything like uh, movement, cardio, strength training, just being active, chasing your kids around, whatever it is you're doing, um, you're going to need more calories for that. So I know this trips people up. Like I talk to people and it is really hard to change your mindset around this but people do need to eat more (laughs) and fat and protein levels for most people need to increase during perimenopause. Mm. So there's, there's this sort of um, like, I don't know you, I don't know if you've heard this, if you've been in personal training, you've heard this, that uh, people will say, you know, 0.8 to 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, Mm -hmm. ideal body weight. That's Mm -hmm. kind of like the formula, the math people do. And in perimenopause, it's more like one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Mm. And, and again, it depends on the person and, you know, in Ayurveda, I don't know a lot about Ayurveda, but I do know that there's different constitutions. And so with depending on your constitution, that'll be different for you. But the, but the general um, concept is that you need a lot more protein and you need to make sure you're eating plenty of healthy fats. So the whole fat-free diets from the eighties and nineties need to go like those need to go. If you haven't (laughs) lost them already, because you need that fat to build those hormones. So now your body's starting to like deprive you of hormones while you want to make sure you have enough building blocks for those hormones. And one of those building blocks is fat. That this is exactly what Allison, um, whose episode will air a couple of weeks now before us, this is exactly what she hit on too, of the low fat. And I've had many people who talk about nutrition that how, 
how horrible in the eighties that was for women in particular, the low fat craze. And I, my, my mom did it. And I just remember, you know, being like, this stuff tastes disgusting as a kid. I'm like, ew, like gross. These like, you know, they're all just like plasticky food and like that. I don't even remember what they were called, but they were, they were black with white inside. Um, they were like these cookies and they were horrible. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. It starts with an E. And I'm like, I can't remember what they were Animals called. or something they were like gross. that. They were yeah. so gross. Yeah. And like stuff like that, that just were like pre-packaged here, eat this instead. And you're like, well, really that's no, that is not great. And I think that's a lot of it. Like, I feel like we're finally coming out of it, but 30 years later, you know, it takes to 30 or 40 years later now to get out of this, you know, those habits and those, those marketing messaging and how in, you know, just ingrained it is into our, to our own, um, habits and what we see and what we unconsciously pick up. So I think that's, that's a key thing just to kind of notice, okay, like the 1200, I did not know that, but the 1200 calories, like, okay, where is this information coming from? Um, who, you know, who decided this was great or like, what are the philosophies? And so I think that's a, that's a key point as well of like, why am I doing the things I'm doing? You know, where did I learn that habit? Or why did I think 1200 calories or 1500, whatever number you plugged into your own brain, where did that number come from? Um, or even the same, like your weight on the scale, like, where did I get this number? Like I have to be this number. Where did that come from? Um, and usually it's a story that we kind of told ourselves somewhere along the lines. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me because all my patients will have a different number in their head of what they think it's supposed to be. And I have a lot of conversations and, and what's interesting is it's very vast, Mm. right? It's very vast. So I always think it'd be interesting. I mean, I can't do this because of HIPAA, but I would (laughs) love to get all my patients in the same room and listen to each other. Um, but I, I do do that. You know, I do do a lot of group visits and and in some instances, uh, they do get the opportunity to do that, but it is, everyone has their own idea of it. And when you start breaking that down into where did I get that idea from? Like what voice in my head or who told me that, or where did I learn that? Um, and you, and you start like, uh, committing to your health over to a number on a scale, it completely shifts the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I don't even have, I think I, well, I do have a scale, but it is broken and it's been broken for, <laughs> since me and my husband have been married. I'm like, I think we got it for our wedding and it broke shortly after. And then it just sits there and I'm like, I, or unless I've thrown it out, I don't even know. I don't even know where it is anymore. And that's where, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, well, how do you know? I'm like, I don't know how much I weigh. I don't, I mean, it's, I go more by how I feel and clothes and I'm like, I can mm-hmm. kind of see, and just, you can see in the mirror, if you're, you know, being honest with yourself too, if you're like, Oh, I like to tone up now, if that's, you know, what you feel like you need to do. Um, and so that's what I tell people. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a lot more just like, how do I feel? What does it look like? Do my clothes fit? And we rock out. Uh, can I do my movement? Yeah. Like I played tennis and I was like, Oh gosh, I was not as great. I got to work on my agility. Now this is also me getting <laughs> older. <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm not no longer 25. So I'm like, I can't, you know, my agility is not as great, but I can work on this. And so like, those are ways that I measure, you know, my own health and how I feel. And so I think having those new parameters that maybe you give yourself is also vital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, one of the biggest conversations that you can have is how do you feel and to measure your strength and your energy. Mm-hmm. 
and your abilities. And then I always say to people, you know, if you were the healthiest physically and mentally that you could possibly be, what would that enable you to do? Mm. Like, why? <laughs> like, why do you, do you want this um, idea that you have for yourself about your health? Mm. And if you can shift that conversation out of weight and into how you want to feel and look, I I'm fine with that. If you want to look a certain way, you knock yourself out, you know, your body, your choice, but the number on the scale is not going to be the story, not the whole story. Right. And so if you can really grab onto these other pieces about how your clothes fit, if it's important for you, um, or maybe get new clothes that fit you, if that helps, or how strong you feel. If you want to have defined muscle and muscle tone, that's great. Then go do it. Go lift some heavy uh, weights and work on that. But I think ultimately what people are saying when they are thinking about a certain weight or a certain size or a certain idea about their health, um, most people want to feel strong and want to have energy and just want to feel good. Like mm -hmm. there's not even much of a adjective besides feel better yeah like yep. people have sometimes it's just to feel better than yep. they do currently yeah that's I mean number one goal you nailed it like everything you said that's a lot of the clients that come to me that's basically what their their goals are and um I know like both of us being in the mass ran like marketing wise you're like oh you can't market to that I'm like that is what most people come they want they just want to feel better. And there isn't a tangible mm -hmm. way because what, what that means to you versus what it means to me versus what it means to someone else, it, it's going to feel and look different because we all have a different definition in our own bodies and mind, because we all are, we all have our own experience, you know, like I might feel like I feel amazing, but then, you know, you feel even better, but I wouldn't know what that feels like. Cause I'm not in your body, if that makes sense. So you're like, Mm -hmm. can't, there's no way to market or message or put that in a bottle. Like it really is a very individualized approach. Um, which is, which is what Ayurveda is all about coming back to my Ayurveda roots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is also what I think naturopathic medicine is about. Like, it's not a blanket. Like I can't give you the roadmap for everyone because it's going to be so personalized as it should be. Right. And I mean, that's literally what, why I named my business crafting clinic, right? Mm. Because there is a craft to it. There is an art to it. There is, you know, and I do a lot of botanical medicines as well, which um, are crafted and dosed very specifically for different people. You know, it's definitely not a one size fits all, but then it's also very clinical. I do a lot of very clinical science and lab work and all that stuff as well, but everybody nobody fits into a one size fits all. Everybody's a little different. And, the, and, you know, even when I bring up things like protein and fat, those are very general statements and everybody wants to know what the thing is though. Right. Like I always say, everybody wants to, the magic pill, but everybody also wants to know what the bullet is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like what's wrong with me. I have to find the one thing that's wrong with me. And I say, well, actually it could be several things. <laughs> You know, like we talked about sleep. If you're not sleeping, guess what? That's a symptom of like 4,800 possible things. <laughs> yes. And so that it is an art, right? Like to add, continue to ask the questions and continue. You could be, you could be stressed out and have burnout and 
have, uh, you know, something going on with your mental health that causes you to lose sleep. And you could also have low progesterone and be in perimenopause. You know, it's not necessarily an either or. And I know in a lot of naturopaths, they talk a lot about root cause medicine or getting to the root, you know, and I actually don't like saying that. And I don't like that because I think it gives people this idea that there's this one thing, like this little kernel, that if we pull all the layers of the onion off, we're going to get to this one culprit, and then we'll be able to do something about that. And I always say that it's usually and both. It's usually like multiple things, and there's usually multiple tools to support you. Yeah. And when I think about that, because Ayurveda loves the root cause, but I also feel the same thing. Cause I think what we're, we're getting at is like, I'll give an example of my own. When I did PT for my, I thought for my hip. So we're treating my hip. Cause we think it's that well, okay. That feels better. Now my IT band and knee feel funny. Okay. So now we're working on that. And then we ended up finding, no, it's actually my ankle that's been causing all of this. And so it's kind of like whack-a-mole where you're like, okay, I thought it was this. We treat that. Okay. The next thing comes up. Okay. We treat that. And then we finally get to the root cause, which I think a lot of us have that in our own health. We might be like, oh, it's the sleep. And then we, we take care of that. And we're like, oh, actually no, like it's, you know, what I'm eating before I go to bed. Oh wait, no, it's not that. And then we Mm -hmm. keep getting those deeper layers and finding that, you know, it could be the root cause, but there are other issues that maybe have compiled on top of that root cause that we have to get through or kind of peel the onion to make it there. Um, or that's kind of what I'm thinking in my head as you were saying that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think that. And I also think that, you know, back to this idea that we've modernized and industrialized faster than we have evolved Mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, getting back to basics is one of the best things you can do. And then an, and both, (laughs) you may need more support. You may need to use hormone therapy. You may need to use some supplements. You may need to do things that you can't out lifestyle. But I do think those foundations of health and the lifestyle, getting back to, I always say, go back into the cave. Mm. <laughs> what were we doing as humans when we were hunter gatherers and you know, uh, following our circadian rhythms, following the light and the sun and the seasons and what was going on? You know, I talk about this a lot in the winter that um, I know this podcast episode is going to air in September. So, you know, now is a perfect time to talk about it is that as we're moving into the, the autumn and into the winter, you know, maybe it's not that everybody gets seasonal affective disorder. Maybe it's that we are not orienting to our natural state for that season. Yeah. <laughs> And that by setting our alarms to wake us up before the sun gets up and to continue our stressful lives and to continue to like work as hard as we're working and to come home when it's dark and like putting all this pressure on ourselves when there's no light and there's no vitamin D in the sun and there's no, you know, it's not so much that we all have seasonal affective disorder, even though that is like a real, um, syndrome, people definitely suffer from that. Uh, it's, it's to start asking yourself, how are you orienting to the world around you, to the natural world around you? Mm. And what changes can you make knowing we're not going to go like 
everyone's not going to be on the same menstrual cycle with the moon in the cave and we're not going to hunt and gather our food. Most of us aren't anyway. Um, but what can you do, right? Like what are the little things that you can do for those foundations that bring you closer to the earth and to your body and to that natural state, start there. And then, and then add in those little, that those bits that support you further. Okay. Well, I think this is a great place to stop. Um, otherwise I could chat with you. I was like, here's what we're going to tell you on the seasonal. I know I was like, and we're going to have a three hour episode. Um, but thank you so much. And I want to know, um, where can people find you if they're like, yes, I need more Dr. Amy in my life. Where can they connect with you at? The best place is Instagram. It's crafting clinic at craft and clinic. That's the best place to start. Um, I keep thinking I'm going to do more with different platforms and whatnot. And I just don't, <laughs> I I'm just doing Instagram. I do have a website craftingclinic.com, Um, but definitely Instagram is like the more active version of me. I love it. And I am the same. That's my, my go-to as well. A little Pinterest. I do enjoy little Pinterest. So I would love to finish with a final uh, weekly challenge. And then when I have a guest on, I have you throw the challenge out to everyone. So what would you like that challenge to be for everyone this week? Mm. I would like the challenge to be a movement outside. Mm. I love it. Get outside, get into the fresh air and move your body. I love it. Every day. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Amy, for coming on and sharing your wisdom. It was such a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone. And go out there and spread your peaceful power.